welcome to this episode of Podcastle in the Sky. This time we'll be talking about Harlock Saga, an anime from 1999, and from earlier in the same decade, the OperaVox production of Das Rheingold. Both of these are adaptations of the Richard Wagner opera of the same name. Now, one of the first thoughts I had watching and comparing these two works is how they both radically changed the role of Mima from the opera. Mima simply isn't in the OperaVox production at all. He's been cut. And I understand why he's been cut, because they're cutting down an opera from two and a half hours to half an hour. They have to trim some things, and Mima doesn't add a whole lot to the plot. The most plot-relevant thing he does is he forges the magic helmet. Whereas in Harlock Saga, Mima is turned from Albrecht's brother to Albrecht's sister, as a willowy, lazy Masamoto sister at that, and as a much more kind of tragic figure than the uh, almost comically abused character of the uh, opera. Um, just uh, just for everybody's reference, Will, can you give like a breakdown, a quick breakdown of what Das Ra- I mean, I know that the animated version that we saw is essentially a summary of the plot, but is there anything else within Das Rheingold that, aside from Mime, that's in the opera that was not in the animated version that we saw? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a number of things. Most obviously, a number of the characters have been cut. Mima is one of the characters who was cut, but they also cut Donner and Fro, who would be better known, perhaps, by their Norse names, Thor and Freyr. So there's more gods of Asgard in the opera than we see in the Rheingold version. But the ones that play the actual most plot-relevant roles are Wotan, Fricka, Loga, and Freya, who are all in the animated version. There's also a very important encounter with... Erda, the goddess of the earth, who appears in the Matsumoto piece as the prophetess Elda. Mostly, though, the principal thing that is different is that a lot of the motivations of the characters are not present or not as explained. Loga becomes very distrustful and disdainful towards the gods. By the end of it, he decides he doesn't want to associate with them anymore. And there's an overriding concern over what is to be done with the ring. Loga promised to get it back to the Rhine Maidens. Wotan is pressured by the giant brothers Fasolt and Fafner to give it to them, but he also considers taking it for himself. But he ultimately opts for the op because Erda appears to warn him. He warn him of the danger of the ring, of the curse of the ring, that he decides to let the brothers have it. There's also um uh more subtext. Some people, like George Bernard Shaw, have argued that there's a strong class element to the ring. And so one of the things that Mima sings about, and since he's cut, it's gone, is how the Nibelung used to dig for gold for themselves and to get little gifts for their wives. But once Alberic had got his ring, he's now able to force all of them to dig to get wealth only for him. So Alberic, in this sense, is becoming quite literally a capitalist. Those are like the main plot things, I think, that we don't have in these versions. And for the... uh... For the clarity of the listeners, would someone like to do a, you know, like 30 second elevator summary of the plot of Dostron and Gold? Since I imagine for most people, they are not familiar with it. A really simple version, if anyone wants to tackle that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I I should have done that. Um, Yeah, uh, actually, just one thing. We actually forgot to introduce ourselves. Oh, gosh. Right, of course. Sorry. Uh, I'm William. I'm Amber. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tom. Okay, so 
very brief summary of Rheingold goes like this. There is the titular Rheingold in the River Rhine. It's protected by three Rhine maidens. It's a beautiful bauble, but if someone were ever to forswear love, to give up love, to become, I suppose, what we use in modern parlance, a valsel, they would be able to seize the Rheingold and use it to get an enormous amount of power. Alberic is a dwarf. He's rebuffed by all three of the Rhine maidens, and he's so frustrated by this, his inability to get love, that he forswears love, seizes the gold, steals it for himself, and goes right back down to his homeland of Nibelheim, deep in the earth. Up in the clouds, gods awaken, because their new fortress has been built by the giants Fasolt and Fafner. However, the gods have promised Freya to, well, specifically Wotan has promised Freya to Fasolt and Fafner as payment, which is why Fricka objects to, because Freya does not want to be with these giants. Wotan only promised this because Loga, that impish half-god, had promised him he'd find a way out of it. So Loga shows up, after the giants have shown up demanding their payment, and says he's gone far and low, looking for someone who values something more than a woman's love. And he couldn't find it until he heard of Alberic, who, of course, had forsworn love for the Rheingold. This sets things into motion, because Loga also says that he wants the Rheingold back for the uh, Rhine maidens. So Loga and Wotan travel down into Nibelheim to get the ring back. Once there, they trick Alberic. Alberic has used the ring to amass a huge hoard of gold, and he's also used it to instruct his brother Mime to make a magic helm, called the Tarnhelm in the opera, though neither of these versions refer to it as such. And they get him to wear this Tarnhelm to turn himself first into a terrible dragon, and subsequently, after, oh, that was very impressive, can he be smaller, he turns into a toad. And once he's a toad, he's very easy to capture. So they capture him, they bring him back up with all his gold. They get him to command his people to bring his gold up with him. So his whole horde is now at the disposal of the gods. The giants return, and they reluctantly accept the gold as an alternative for Freya. But they insist, ultimately, on getting all of it. Also getting the magic helmet, and finally also getting the ring. But this is where Wotan draws the line. This is the ring of power. This is a ring which, if Alberic had actually kept it as he wanted to, he would have eventually used it to replace the gods. And he talks about making the women, although not loving him, serving him. in this kind of creepy idea. Alberic's a real piece of work. Anyway, so Wotan is about to keep the ring for himself, but then Erda, goddess of the earth, appears. And she warns him of the terrible doom around the ring. And this really sobers him. So he finally reluctantly parts the ring he gives it to the giants. And as soon as he does that, the giants begin to fight over how to divide the spoils. Do they divide it 50-50? They weren't going to divide Freya 50-50. And eventually, Fafner kills his brother Fasolt outright, thus resolving the issue and confirming that the ring is a cursed thing to own. The giants go off, and the gods look up at their great fortress, and it occurs to Wotan, you know what? I'm calling that Valhalla. And Donner assembles the mists, this wonderful musical segment, which is not an either version because he's been cut, and they go up what would be called in Norse mythology the Bifrost to enter Valhalla. But Loga is really, really chagrined by this whole turn of events because he'd promised to get this gold back to the Rhine Maidens, and Wotan preferred to pay the giants with this gold he'd stolen to renege on a deal he had no intention of keeping. He's sickened by how the gods have 
handle this whole situation. And he's like, you know what? He doesn't really feel good with being corporeal anymore. He's going to go back to being fire. Because Logan's kind of half fire in, in this particular version of the story. And that's how we end. That's like more than either things had. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also, what's the dwarf's name again? Excuse me? Sorry. Albrecht. Albrecht, thank you. Albrecht, original incel? Just just throwing that out there. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, I think that's the biggest biggest difference between the two versions. And I'd be interested, Will, if you know what the sort of existing like scholarship and, and interpretations of the original are in terms of in at least the Wagner opera that we got, you know, it's it, you have Albrecht, who's these sort of pathetic, physically ugly, spiritually, in terms of his personality, ugly, you know, subterranean kind of monster creature. He's pathetic and repugnant. And you have Wotan, who is perhaps misguided or manipulated, but ultimately uh, realizes, at least because of the guidance of other characters, the folly of his ways. But his initial decisions set a lot of the you know, tragedy to come into motion. And the Matsumoto piece in particular, by making Mimei into a sympathetic character, really sort of foregrounds the extent to which in the Matsumoto piece, Wotan is actually the primary antagonist in some ways. Albrecht has sort of been perverted by the conditions into which he has been placed by the gods, rather than the Albrecht of the original, whose fundamental issue is really just kind of jealousy and lust that is unfulfilled. And so I'd be interested, you know, in interpretations of the original work, and certainly Loja feels this way at the end of the story, you know, is there sort of a, not sympathetic, but is there a notion that the gods are as corrupt as the dwarves? Yeah, yeah, I think if you get the full opera, there's certainly, from Loga's perspective, there are as bad. But at the same time, the very truncated version we get in Opera Vox is close to the piece in that Albrecht is this kind of pathetic, unpleasant character. Mima is more sympathetic by contrast to Albrecht in Rheingold, though he gets less sympathetic in a subsequent opera, Siegfried, where he's Siegfried's parent, essentially. He's raising him because his birth parents are dead, and he's kind of a comic figure in that one. One thing that really struck me about Leiji Matsumoto is he, he kind of nobles Albrecht. Something that's not a very big part of Rheingold is the idea that Albrecht will eventually use his power to turn on the gods. Keyword there is eventually. He's just got the power. He's on like his first day of digging gold out of the earth. That's his priority. Get gold from the earth, make the Tarnhelm, you know, dominate his people. Eventually, he's going to go on the gods, but it's not his first thing to do. Whereas with Albrecht in the Harlock Saga, a war against the gods is kind of like a primary motive for him. He looks at the gods, the source of his oppression. His lust and his interest is all very directed. Well, not his lust. There's no lust with this character, but his obsessions are all about Votan. The Rhine Mains are completely incidental in Leiji Matsumoto's version. They're just women who happen to be there and happen to be long, willowy Leiji Matsumoto women, and that's all they are. Um, so these kinds of myths, like half the time, the victims in the stories actually had it coming. Like uh, they're like, oh my god, hero, we're being attacked by a dragon, but that's because we stole his gold. But you gotta help us. Like I'm kind of like wondering why they start out that way because when did it make it simpler to have the victims be innocent instead of like complete jerks who kind of deserve whatever's coming to them? I don't wonder. Just from a mythological standpoint, 
I have a feeling that a lot of these myths, especially Norse myths, and although I, I do admit that Norse myths are kind of a back burner knowledge of mine, I'm much more familiar with Greek myths when it comes to a classical era type myth. But it does feel like a lot of myths, rather than them following this idea of a, a heroic personage, your heroes are just always flawed. There are no true victims, you know, except for maybe someone like Penelope waiting for Odysseus, you know, something like that. And in that case, she just embodies the the faithful, idealistic wife image. But and I think it's because the myths were serving a purpose more along the lines of explaining hubris and explaining like why like why bad things you know what I mean like why there's like like a through line of of a need for a, a catharsis eventually you know so like the idea of the idealistic hero story I think is actually a little bit more modern among your folk and fairy tales. I mean, even someone who, like Theseus or Hercules, both of them, while considered the most heroic heroes of, you know, Grecian lore, like Hercules starts out because he went mad thanks to Hera and killed his family. And that's why he had to start doing his 12 tasks. And Theseus had a regular bout of getting hoisted by his own petard, like when he got stuck in Hades after getting tricked by Persephone, when he he and his buddies' whole goal was to steal Persephone away, you know? So, like, I just feel like there's there's something going on in older mythology that is trying to kind of, like, humanize in some ways these great people, you know? Even the gods are jealous and even the gods are greedy you know yeah i mean i think it's also sort of a you know a reflection of just the the power structures people lived in i mean you know obviously in the the modern context we think of political structures and all that as you know being creations of, of people flawed people um and you know the idea of course of you know overthrowing them or replacing them or you know, these are all ideas that we take for granted, but there's a real sort of inherent cynicism and tragedy in a lot of older mythology. And I, I think it is because there's a, there's a notion that there's a sort of the, the structure of the world has been that way since time immemorial and it will be that way. But you sort of, like you also said, you also have to explain why these less than satisfactory outcomes happen. And the nature of it is that you do have these flawed individuals. You have the the world of the gods, which is all again, it's it's the same emotions that you see in, in your leaders who lead you off to pointless wars and kill each other over you know uh, love affairs. I mean, obviously we have the, the Iliad, which is you know this huge, horrible, destructive war, and what's what's the basis of it all? And and even the, the characters in that fundamentally there's, there's a cynicism about why they're there and what they're doing and if it's worth it. And there's just sort of this notion that at the end of it all, and I mean, even, even uh, mythological conceptions of hell. I mean, I'm, I'm not like a Greek scholar here, but my, my understanding is that, you know, kind of everyone, everyone goes to the underworld basically in the same way. There's not really like a, salvation idea here everyone is corrupted and will fall in one way or another 
I'd say the uh, one kind of exception to this would be the Rhine Maidens themselves, who are entirely blameless in a direct sense in the kind of struggle between the gods, the dwarves, and the giants, which dominates Rheingold. And something that builds over the, the ring as a four-opera cycle is that the one redemption with the ring is to return it to the Rhine Maidens, which, however, no one really gets to do until the very end, after so many people have died fighting over it. So it's this idea that, in a sense, not in a Christian sense, but Alberic stealing the ring is one of the original sins that sets this in, in motion. The other one being, of course, never being willing to pay the giants what they asked for and agreeing to a payment which they shouldn't have agreed to to begin with, Valhalla itself being founded on this, this morally suspect origin. You know, it makes me wonder, and I would have to do a lot more research to check it out, just to see if the idealistic hero character, the better than us, at least from a Western literature and tradition standpoint, obviously, didn't really start popping up, didn't start popping up regularly until the platonic ideal and eventually like just the idealization of a perfect God being in Christ and the Almighty didn't start spreading, you know, throughout the Western world. It just feels like the humanization of gods and heroes was so much more prevalent before those two ideas started to kind of take hold of Western ideas of heroism and godhood. Anyway, yeah, that's, you know, just thinking about, uh, you know, massive aside, obviously, you know, to both the anime and the ring circle. Right. And of course, obviously, when we, you know, Wagner is even more complicated because we're looking at something that is inspired by older mythologies, but also being channeled through a entirely contemporary and new kind of uh, way of looking at the world, which is, you know, romantic nationalism and sort of uh, mapping old myths onto sort of a type of a way of looking at the world and the way of looking at society in a way that didn't exist when these mythologies were initially created. And so there's there's layers of interpretation here that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, a number of details here are original to Wagner. Take, for example, the giants. Fafner is certainly a character from Norse mythology, but Fafner was a dwarf who later became a dragon, while Fasolt is a figure, as best as I can tell, from the Thedric saga, which refers to Theodoric the Great, the Ostrogothic leader, and is an early example of German literature. Wagner began essentially working with one of the canonical works of German mythology, the Nibelunglied, which has the story of Siegfried, it has the story of Kriemhild, there's a story of Brunhild, but then he worked back from that to the Norse sources of it. It was originally a Christianized version, so he worked all these different things together. And so now we get Fafner is a giant, and he kills his brother Fasolt, who is a character distinctly from German mythology. The dwarf Andvari from Norse mythology is combined with the Alberic of German folk stories. All these different things have been put together and reworked. The only geographic location mentioned is the River Rhine. It's the only real-world location in the entire opera, and it's the only Pacific real-world location in all four operas. And, of course, it is a German location, not a Norse one. And many interpreters see the kind of power play of Wagner's work in the context of the political tumult of the 19th century, which he was actively involved with. Famously, he was a participant in the revolutions of 1848. One anecdote I like uh, repeating is that he was in Dresden on the battlements with Mikhail Bakunin, the noted anarchist. Uh, they reportedly hated each other, but in that time and place, they were on the same side. 
So all this kind of political tumult. He came from a very radical background, but he was also an intense German nationalist. Famously, he was an anti-Semite, which was partially for envy, because when he was in France, there was a very successful German composer called Mayer Beer, who did a lot of hit operas. He took Wagner under his wing, but Mayer Beer continued to be a success in France, but Wagner wasn't. And Wagner began to say, well, this is because he's Jewish, you know? Because he's Jewish, of course he can blend in with France. Jews don't have a home country. And then he built this into a much longer, bitterer thing. So we have these ancient myths, but they're being reinterpreted in a particularly 19th century way. And on top of that, we have mid-1990s adaptations of this kind of Wagnerian stuff. It's kind of like layers and layers to it. Speaking of the uh, political context of the opera, I can see now why the Nazis were so enamored with Wagner. I mean, even just from what we're seeing from the anime and the cartoon show, the very short cartoon show made from the opera, it's like um, all these um, racial um, depictions, like the dwarves are like these disgusting, tiny, greedy people, and the giants, they're clearly lower than the gods, just the lower class of people basically than the gods and and the gods are just free to break their word to them because that's how things work out we're the elite you're not we don't have to keep our word to you well yeah the uh the point about the dwarves is one that many people have made theodore adorno had that particular reading of alberic but the need of the gods to keep their word is kind of a thematically important thing in the works although it's barely mentioned here like, you see a couple of shots of Wotan's sphere in Opera Box. His sphere is his bomb. All his contracts are written on his sphere. All his power comes from his contracts, and he has to abide by them. So he's weighted down by his obligations to the giants and his obligations to others. It eventually becomes something he can't escape. And he's only able to escape it, finally, in the third opera, when Siegfried breaks his spear. But that also... You know, pretty soon, then Valhalla is aflame. So it's like, yeah, you can get out of your contracts, but you're going to wind up dead. So he's not in a very great situation in that sense. But I would say, um, in terms of like Nazi admiration, Siegfried would be a popular character because he's this kind of self-made man. He lives out in nature. He knows right and wrong. He's a forceful figure. He has no interest in intellectualism. You know, he's kind of a noble idiot. Pretty much. Wasn't he born from incest? Yes, he was. One major thing that keeps occurring in the ring is sexual transgression often being better than more staid morality. The only thing that anyone is actually against the Rhine, Rhine maidens is that they're lewd. Fricka doesn't like them, like about that, that they're lewd and they lead men astray. Otherwise, like I said, they're noble, heroic, and virtuous. In the second opera, there are two major human relationships. One is between with a brother and sister who do sleep together. The other one is the sister and her husband. And Fricka, the goddess of marriage, says you have to uphold the relationship between this, between this woman and her husband. But he's her husband because he kidnapped her. You know? Yeah. He forced her to marry him. It's acceptable to the god of marriage, but it's not a loving relationship. It's a deeply, deeply resentful and unhappy marriage. And for that matter, Wotan's relationship with Fricka is pretty terrible by that point. They are barely on speaking terms. It's like Fricka hasn't divorced him just because she can occasionally get him to do what she wants. Although in fairness, Wotan has been sleeping around a lot by that point because the Valkyries are all the children of him and Erda. And Sigmund and Sieglinde are also his children. 
a huge amount of the characters in that opera are just his kids by other women. So you can see why Frick is a little pissed. Yeah, I mean, the the later sort of Nazi uh, adoption of Wagner, obviously, sort of hangs hangs over his work, and it's easy to, to look at it and see sort of uh, <laughs> more unsavory allegorical elements that might be in there, and just be like, ooh, ooh, but at the same time, there is sort of a sense that, as they were, the Nazis were artistically illiterate dumbasses and seemed to have maybe uh, not not really conceptualize very well all the things we were just talking about, about the less uh, less than perfect world of the gods and the this, uh, there is there is sort of a, many reasons why this uh, world went astray and, and found itself ending in, in tragedy. And again, that's sort of something that the Matsumoto piece highlights, I think, is that, you know, like we were just talking about with the different successive waves of adaptation, the Matsumoto piece sort of picks out some of these uh, subversive might be a too strong a word for it, but the sort of aspects of it that are questioning the natural order of things. And particularly with, I mean, Alberic is still the antagonist, uh, or at least one of the antagonists in the Matsumoto piece. But on some level, Harlock almost sort of adopts elements of his mission by the end of the film. And he's, he's set on a collision course with Wotan. Just to go to the adaptation of Rheingold that we watched, from listening to what we're missing, and it sounds like the story itself is much richer than the adaptation could make. And let me put this in context of knowing that like a half-hour animated adaptation is just not going to be able to bring in everything. Ultimately, I think that the adaptation was kind of a failure from a bunch of different aspects. I mean, first of all, the music just felt really not quite done in its totality. You know, it was just kind of like... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was just so, you know, truncated that there was no way to really appreciate it from a musical standpoint. And that's even like taking away from the fact that they translated it to English rather than German, which I also totally understand because it's, again, a half-hour adaptation, so I'm not going to, like, harp on that. But, so, like, you have a truncated music, and then the animation style was one that I was not keen on either. It was like, it was like that heavy metal-esque, super rotoscoped, somewhat grotesque animation, you know? And, I mean, you've even got, like, Freya in this... <laughs> this <Yeah>. battle bikini <laughs> like to make me laugh <laughs> yeah that you know one thing i can't fault this adaptation you know even though it was a half hour thing and it was produced for the bbc and i think the intended audience were children they did not skimp on the horniness of the text you know they, yeah. they made that quite explicit i mean it i have was, to give them that I, I would have to give them that but again it's an it's an animation style that i have appreciated insert like again I say heavy metal-esque because it absolutely felt like it was from that same kind of... In fact, I looked up to see if it was from any animation studio related to the people who did heavy metal, and it is not. It does look like it was a purposeful homage to that style, though, which I thought was interesting. And... I mean, I liked it in heavy metal, which is, you know, I think I can get why they did it in that style because heavy metal is such a like 
you've got your crazy ass space epic stuff. You know what I mean? So it feels like it would be a style that would like feed into this. However, with that style, they made this really weird decision to fully every fucking thing. Like we've got like, you can hear like people doing footsteps. Like it sounds like someone with a pair of shoes going toomp, 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 toomp as they're walking around on ground in between musical scenes and stuff like that. And you can hear people shifting in their gear and their armor and their, it was just, it was just kind of like an adaptation that I I watched and I was like, "Eh, this is not my favorite. (laughs) I liked it, but I suppose I was looking for very specific things from it because like, uh, you know, I've, I've listened to Rheingold on and off since I was a teenager and it's nice to actually sit down and watch Alberic turn into the dragon. You know, you hear about him turning into the dragon, you have them sing about him turning into the dragon, but you don't actually have like a whole transformation sequence. That's not something you can do in an opera production. And uh, I think in that sense, the animation occasionally does stuff that you cannot do in an opera production. That's one of the more obvious ones. But also, like, say, Loga's kind of distinctly inhuman design and the way he literally does turn into fire. I like those little touches. I suppose I appreciated that element, but it is definitely a very truncated version. It's not an alternative to the opera by any means, but it's like a Cliff Notes version where you get to see some animators really work through the expressions in some of the arias, like Albrecht's really indignant, if I could have but one, those kind of things. I enjoyed it for that element, really. Well, regarding the marriage of sorcery and spaceships, I mean, obviously we have that uh, in the Harlock saga, but I'm kind of wondering why specifically they did it, like they adapted this opera with these specific characters. Like this opera is about like conflict between gods and dwarves and giants. And then Leiji Matsumoto was like, you know what? That totally could use space pirates in it. I was like, <laughs> why space pirates? Like, the characters, they're all in these individual heroes. They're small groups of people. It's not like this giant crew sailing across the seas fighting giant fleets or something. So I'm unclear on the space piracy angle. Oh, well, I kind of am with you, Jesse, just because like, I also felt like a lot of the narrative elements, they were trying to make it all fit. And I don't know if it's just because the series didn't have the time to explore much. You know, I mean, it's it's only six half hour episodes even. So there's only so much that you could do. But it did feel sometimes like they were trying to cram a lot of story elements into a box that didn't quite fit all of the elements in. And the connections they were trying to make were sometimes really tenuous or they really had to rush through explanations or... They they didn't have a lot of room to explore, like, many of the characters that they introduced that weren't the space pirates, or explore why the, the space pirates... Like, like Mime, for instance. I mean, I just read up on some of the older... Like, the Harlock saga from, like, the 70s, where Mime was, like, a heavy-drinking alien lady who sailed space with them, and now she's kind of shoved into this box of one of the two women who are keeping the gods eternal. And I don't know, it just felt a little bit like they, you know, the sketched out connections of the space pirates to this broader narrative. It didn't quite gel, you know? I sort of understand it. Like recently I've been reading a lot of David A. Drake, who's this science fiction military writer. I've been reading his Hammer Slammers series, which is really just a bunch of short stories mostly inspired by his own experiences fighting in Vietnam and Cambodia. 
but he's also someone with a strong classical scholarship background, which is what I'm getting to here. So eventually he was like, you know what? I could adapt the Odyssey as one of these stories. So he goes off and he writes a space opera version of the Odyssey. And it kind of works, and it also kind of doesn't. He really has to go through hoops to have his planet, which is Tethys, Odysseus's homeworld. And the suitors aren't suitors. They're like a different faction in the government and that kind of thing. So I can understand the impulse, get this classic story, turn it into a space opera. And then there's the issues of the execution, because the story is never designed to be a space opera. I think that's also an issue with Harlock Saga. Oddly, it sometimes introduces its own problems entirely unique to it. Like there's a whole subplot where Alberic has to get someone to forge the Ignat into uh, a ring. And only one person in the universe can do that for him. Whereas, okay, so that's how the story is working, but obviously lots of people can forge gold Ignats into rings. So I understand there's some sort of magical element, the Rheingold, but in the opera, Albrecht just makes the ring himself, and he's able to do it simply because he's forsworn love. He doesn't need any like physical knowledge in how to make a ring. So he introduces an element of very retro technology stuff into his story for some reason, which didn't need to be there. Oh, honestly, the whole forging of the ring section of the Harlock saga was just kind of like didn't work for me at all. Because, I mean, first you've got Mime magically coming to the guy with the space train and telling him, there's going to be someone who he's going to want you to make a ring. Don't do it. Thanks. And then she goes. And he's like, okay. And then then the guy comes and he's like, hey, make me a ring. And he's like, no. And then he's like, oh, I see. You just can't do it. And he's like, like not even like that hard either just kind of like i guess you just don't you're not good at making yeah i thought they were setting up some fall from grace there and then i was yeah. like oh you, you made a mistake uh come on board sorry buddy yeah exactly like, um, it, it didn't have any kind of like fallout from that he just goes aside from the ring being made he just like almost gets killed and then he joins the crew and then literally does nothing for the rest yeah, of Yeah, I'm guessing that is <laughs> tying into some longer plot arc uh, mm-hmm. about becoming like the future Harlock or something that is well beyond my knowledge of the Lagiverse. I think it's also an attempt to like rope in more of his characters. Like it's primarily Captain Harlock. But as Amber refers to, there's also Mattel in that particular plot who's from Galaxy Express 999. Which was, you know, the train that goes through space. Oh, I didn't realize so that, that was... Uh... That was a whole thing. It was like 110 episodes of an anime. It was a long-running Leiji manga as well. It's like one of the core elements of the Leiji-verse. There's Captain Harlock, there's the train, again, Galaxy Express 999, and then there's a couple of other things, like Queen Esmeraldas, who's related to Harlock, who also, I think, briefly appears here, that kind of thing. Oh, I was going to ask about the train. I recognize it from somewhere. Yeah, like, yeah. So it's basically yeah. fan service. For, uh, I didn't even realize it was an Easter egg. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, it's I mean, kind of... Technically, these, uh, like, I think Yamato and, and uh, Galaxy Express 999 and Harlock are all tangentially connected to each other in some sort of... End, but they've all... Or Yamato hasn't, at least Lazy's version, but... The others have been rebooted and, and, and reconfigured, and so how they all connect and what the, the timeline is is something we, uh, we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty, because I'm not sure even he knows completely. Well, but there's one thing. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Yamato, because, well, this is topical when we're recording it, but it probably won't be topical when this is released, because we're about a week out of Spider-Man leaving the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
And Yamato is in kind of a similar situation with Leiji's works because it was one of the things he co-created. He directed the original anime. You know, the character designs are very much in his style. But there were long disputes over the rights of Yamato, which ran for decades. And ultimately, most of it went to the other creator, Nishizaki. And because of this reason, a lot of Masamoto's subsequent work does not include Yamato stuff unless he's able to. So and this is slightly relevant here because Captain Harlock, the main character of Harlock Saga, was meant to be the brother of uh, one of the characters on Yamato. Kodai, I think his name is. Kodai uh, Susumu. His brother is someone who's commanding a ship, and he dies in the very first episode of Yamato, but it was later to be revealed that actually he's lived on and he's become a space pirate. But Yamato was cancelled, and then Matsumoto did Captain Harlock on his own, but he still tried to tie them in occasionally when he could with manga. So it's kind of like a similar situation with Spider-Man, because he not really part of the same universe, but sometimes it is. Was the Harlock saga supposed to be kind of like a, or was it, because I, I didn't yeah. see for sure, supposed to be kind of like a a backdoor pilot, if you will, like a means to create a new show, because it sort of ends on that note, but... Sort of. So Saga, the one we watch is a reboot uh, of the narrative. Okay. Again, this isn't something I'm an expert in, but the original Harlock is, is decades earlier... And this the seventies, yeah, uh, of the story into Das Rheingold, because uh, the all the Das Rheingold stuff is is not part of the original Harlock narrative. Uh, this was a new a new reconfiguration of the project, and yeah, I, I'm not familiar with why exactly he was attracted to. Maybe he's just been a Wagner guy his entire life, and uh, the narrative has some issues. But on whole, I actually thought it worked quite well, just because Harlock. You know, Harlock is the farthest thing from hard sci-fi. You know, this aesthetic is not hard sci-fi. I mean, his ship has a literal, you know, like a sailing ship on the, the bow. And it, it sort of exists in this, like, mythic fantasy space anyway. So I thought actually mapping these sort of larger-than-life 19th century concepts onto these characters that already kind of embody those values and aesthetics, the way they're dressed and everything. It, I, I actually thought it worked rather nicely on whole. Um, basically, Leiji Matsumoto did a manga adaptation of Der Ring, which he never finished, as it turned out. He stalled it uh, while writing the final opera, Goddard Amarang. That is the final manga adaptation of that. And then we have this anime ad- adaptation, but it only covers Das Rheingold, which is the first part. So it's it's definitely something that's setting something up that was never resolved in either iteration. Whereas the Opera Vox version of Das Rheingold was never intended to be paired with later Wagner operas. They very very clearly chose Das Rheingold because that seemed like an easy Wagner opera to digest into half an hour. It is the shortest of the Ring operas, even if it is, you know, two and a half hours. The other ones are, like, much longer, so... Well, okay, so then I want to, like, kind of pull away from comparing and contrasting it to Das Rheingold for a sec, just to see if it works on its own as a story, because there were things that I liked about it, and then there were things that I was kind of like, eh. Like, I did kind of enjoy that first intro. Honestly, the intro into the story I thought was pretty solid. You've got these two heretical people who are exploring an asteroid that was living and now it's dead and mysteriously so. And then you've got Mime showing up in uh, holographic form, Uh, some sort of, you know, 
mystical form, you know, explaining what went down and then the explosion and like the space cops are there. You know, yeah, I, I just thought that that whole intro scene was I, I was pretty solidly on board to the story. I just felt like there, you know, like uh, and going to, to the planet with the ring, you know, and watching it get completely destroyed. I wish that they had done a little bit more with the, the maidens because they just kind of were there. You know, there was no real purpose for them other than the fact that they were part of the ring cycle, you know, and, you know, they don't even have a scene where they are trying to protect the wrangle from attackers. It, they just are kind of sadly there, you know, and beyond that, we already talked about the forging of the ring. I thought that the gods were pretty well done and sinister, you know, in their nature, or at least if not sinister, then certainly not sympathetic because they don't see what with their age and their power over the universe, they don't really see like individuals as anything more than like kind of specs who are causing issues with their plans. And my one complaint there is that I wish that there had been a little bit more of them, you know, like we didn't get, we didn't get anything but Odin and Fricka, you know? Oh, and Freya, of course, but Freya is such a, I mean, she's, she's just there to be the mirror of Mime. And first of all, and second of all, to be raped by a couple of giants, you know, so that we can be, you know, be sorry for her, you know? And I, I don't know, like, there, like, again, there were other elements that I felt like didn't work. I, I always am very not keen on any character that, you know, like this, again, Freya, who is used, you know, I know she's used like this in the Wagner opera, too. But like, she's like that, that is of its time, you know, but in the anime, she's, she's very much just there as a sad person who, I mean, it's pretty well implied that they rape her, right? Because they say that, you know, that, that Odin basically allowed the giants to have their way with her. And then afterwards, uh, the giants are kind of painted in a, this sympathetic light where, and they're like, oh, we know that you can't ever love us, you know, but we will save everything. We'll, we'll go ahead and destroy the fortress we built, you know, like to save every, you know, it's, I just, I hate it when a female character is basically there just to, just as an object, you know what I mean? And the people who were her terrorizers you know, get no recourse that in fact, there's painted sympathetically like, well, they do actually love her. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's I o- mean, <laughs> it's okay. Like, that she uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's definitely, I think much more implied in the Harlock saga than in Das Rheingold, either in the opera Vox or in the full opera where the giants do take Freya, but they take her as collateral. We're taking her and we're going to keep her until you give us something alternative basically the position. There's nothing in the text to say that they actually did anything to her other than that, although, of course, you could read it as saying that they had. Whereas with um, Harlock, they do explicitly come on to her just to uh, assault her. Right, and like, when they say they can't be with her, they're like, oh, we just live in different worlds. (laughs) 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 We're too different. It's like sounding like they're breaking up, trying to break up with her gently instead of... (laughs) You know, like, uh, you probably don't want to be with us because we gang raped you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my guess is that it's sort of a weird scene because it's like, my guess is when they say tusher, they literally 
just mean literal it's because like matsumoto is sort of like it's not really the sort of content he's into like he's he's not an edgy person yeah but like i think they literally meant just like touch your hair or something uh just but the but they cut away. They cut sort of, away pretty, and she like drops a thing, and I don't you know. know. What, man. That's the thing. It's like no matter what textually happens, like the way it's framed is is the mm-hmm. same. So it, mm-hmm. it kind of like comes off the same way. It's yeah, yeah. No, I I understand what you're saying. I do like the uh, whole thing with time, though, which is unique to the Harlock saga. The idea that the Rhinegold controls time and the reason the gods are so ancient is that they live in an area where time passes really really slow so you know they they can live a thousand years in an instant or something there's not not a lot is actually done with this idea but it seems to be implying that the fall of the gods will be about them losing that kind of unique time ability that i did like too i kind of like this i mean just for a pseudo sci-fi explanation of why they live so long i was kind of into it i'm always a little bit like but so are they half there an aspect of them always playing the organs while also living life kind of thing of any story wherein somebody must do a task to make um i don't know this the world spin or the the you know sun rise from the sky you know but that's that's frankly more of a nitpicky back end trying to explain things thing in my brain not necessarily a story element that is weak you know what i mean so yeah i i was kind of into that as well and also kind of into the idea that their their long livedness isn't because they themselves feel that time passing you know what i mean also, Matsumoto just likes pipe organs. Yeah. <laughs> there's, lots, there's, there's lots of pipe organs and all this stuff. And again, that's one of the things that makes it work for me. It's like, what, like, what a great idea. Like, what a great, like, gothic space idea that, like, the control of time is by these, like, sad women playing giant pipe organs. Like, that's great. That's. I figured that was probably a Matsumoto thing because while there's an enormous orchestra, for the ring, it notably does not feature any organs. So I was wondering where, where that came in. You know, it's very big on horns. If they're playing horns all the time, I, w- I would have, uh, I would have got it. I'm just imagining them trying to have a conversation in the middle of horn blast. Carter literally, literally designed like a new kind of horn just for the ring cycle. It's that into horns. We're in leader. Wow, that is very. Very pro horn man. <laughs> I uh, I kind of wish Harlock Saga had gone more into the sci-fi thing because the gold was like literally gold, like magic gold. I wish they had gone more into like stupid techno babble about like a new warp drive or something because I I feel like it would have fit more in the setting, you know, like these alien gods and these um these weird technologies. And meanwhile, it's just like a actual gold ring in the thingy. Like it's the one ring from Lord of the Rings or something. Right. Uh, I, I mean, other deliberately, actually, that reminds me of something that really caught my eye is um, in Rheingold, they have uh, the line, the dwarf is Lord of the Ring. And, you know, that's not like an inaccurate translation, but it's not one I normally see for that particular part. And I feel like they kind of just went with it. Like a couple of times in the opera, the term during hair is used. So literally the rings Lord or Lord of the Rings. So it's acceptable, but I do think they're winking at LOTR there a bit. It's just like, um, I don't know. I feel like in space opera in general, it has a problem of, of like just, well, whenever there's like um space battles, it's just 
the actual thing happening is people standing around looking at the big DV yelling at it. Like, <laughs> and it happened a lot in Harlock Saga. A lot of the, the uh, climactic space battles is just people standing around and watching stuff blow up. And I, I was kind of like, a, holy crap, how many spaceships are we going to see blowing up? Like, I'm not sure how many more spaceships I can stand blowing up. It kind of felt like the ending of a Marvel movie where all this spectacle of stuff being destroyed and you're like, okay, move the story along. I don't really care watching London get destroyed. I would say an issue there is that there isn't really a sense of strategy. It's just Albrecht has a big fleet and the other guys also have a big fleet. And now these two anonymous fleets are just going to slug it out a bit, which is one of my issues with the Avengers films. It's just here's a bunch of people. They line up and then they all have a bunch of cool moments. There's no sense of an ebb and flow of a battle. So like I would contrast, say, an Avengers battle to something like Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings as a battle which has a real sense of an arc and tactics. And in this case, I would compare the Harlock Saga battle to something like from Legend of the Galactic Heroes, entirely a legitimate way for me to bring that up when I know I was going to do it, where there are many, many, many long space battles, but it's always about here's the plan of this guy, here's the plan of that guy, and here's how their plans collide, and how do they adjust their plans, and what are they going to do now? It brings you through the blow-by-blow of what's going on, which here is just a lot of explosions. Although I will say, I did really like the kind of ship designs and like flying around and all the technical stuff in Harlock Saga. I really like that kind of 90s little granular detail and all the space design things that they used to have back then in anime. The 90s animation did make me feel kind of nostalgic. You know, like I was like, oh man, I remember, I remember this style, you know. <laughs> just uh, speaking of the 90s sci-fi, just a quick thing. You notice that the um, Harlock Saga, the uh, doors, they swoosh open like in Star Trek Next Generation. Oh, <laughs> I didn't notice that. Oh, oh, uh, can can I just say, though, um, maybe one of you guys know this, though, like the guy, their navigator or whatever. Oh, man, I hated every time he was on the screen. <laughs> oh, the, <laughs> the, the little pirate guy? Yeah, uh, the little pirate guy. I was not. I. I was like. I. I was nostalgic for the style, and then I. And then the little pirate guy, and I was like, I'm not really nostalgic for that guy. <laughs> well, uh, little pirate guy is straight out of like 1970, yeah. or whatever. Uh, well, you know, it, it's Leiji Matsumoto, and he has like three or four different character designs. He's like willowy women, and then he has these kind of like brooding men, and then he's got these little fat pug guys like Totoro. <laughs> but I. I, I mean, I kind of liked Totoro. At least Totoro like was like you know. Just an interesting dude, even if he was like this tiny, squat, eyeless person. But the navigator, whose name I I purposely didn't choose to remember, <laughs> like uh, I I was just like, oh no! <laughs> and, and he and he has an important part of the story. He has to tell him when the action's happening. Oh god! <laughs> so, <laughs> poor navigator. I have no idea who you're talking about. If it's not Totoro and it's not Harlock. It's the little like the little. See, dude, you can't even remember. Will. He's, he's you, wearing you a striped shirt, like like he's me from. <laughs> like he literally looks like a little he pirate. He literally has like. Oh, a, so like he, a he's, he's one of the little. He's one of the little yeah. people. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he's like a he. He like has a skull and crossbones. Like he's like yeah. he's a stand-in for actually animating an an engineering crew. You know, like yeah, yeah. 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 He looks like he's in Captain Hook's crew. Yes. Yes. Okay. He does yeah, kind of I, look like a Hanna-Barber character, but whatever. <laughs> you know. 
you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up to see if I can. Yeah. Um. Uh. Maybe you can answer this, Will. You don't have to go into great detail, but go on. obviously, at the end of a uh, Harlock saga, it's setting up an eventual confrontation between Harlock and the gods, God of Damron, all that stuff. Is this what is sort of the long arc of of the Ring cycle? Do all the gods murder each other in a great apocalyptic battle, and is that seen as a good thing, bad thing, inevitable, neutral thing that you can't escape, etc.? Yeah, well, the gods don't do it because uh, Rheingold is really kind of the setup where you have the gods, the giants, the dwarves, and all these other fantasy creatures fighting over each other. And then in the next three operas, we get into the world of men in a much bigger role. So, um, for example, most of the gods only appear in Rheingold. Loga only appears in later operas as fire because he's, you know, renounced being human. Basically, it's about a fight in a sense of Wotan against himself is one of the major motives in Valkyrie. There's what Votan wants to do, and there's what he has to do. And in Valkyrie, these suddenly come to complete collision. And Brunhilde, his daughter, becomes the one who carries out what he wants done, and not what he says done. And he, of course, has to punish her for this, because um, she is trying to return the ring, ultimately, to the Rhine Maidens, ultimately to re- release this curse. And he can't get involved because he was directly responsible for giving the ring to Fafner. So he can't be, you know, scheming to get the ring from Fafner. That breaks his contract. So in simple terms, ultimately, the hero of the last two operas is Siegfried. And Siegfried is finally a hero who has no connection to Wotan. He's, he doesn't know who Wotan is. Wotan has not directed him. There's finally a guy who's going to do what Wotan wants, and Wotan never told him about it, so he's complete deniability, basically. And what Photon wants is for Siegfried to go against Photon, to defeat Photon, as he does it at the... Well, that's the wrong way to put it. Um, so Harlock is probably being put into the Siegfried character. Harlock is definitely Siegfried. Like, I, I skimmed the description of the manga, and in the second version, they go back in time to check on his father. And in Die Valkura, one of the main characters is Siegfried's father, Siegmund. So obviously, if... Harlock's father is a big part of Valkyrie, then Harlock must be great. So yeah, they're giving him the kind of resistance of the gods thing, but without connecting to them, without connecting him to Wotan at all. I guess a simple way to explain this is, how can I put this? Siegfried is meant to do something pretty simple, which is get the ring and get rid of it. He never understands the power of the ring, and he eventually still gets cursed by it anyway, and he winds up dead as well. So he winds up dead, the gods wind up dead, everyone pretty much dies, but the banks of the Rhine break, so that's good. So at, in Ragnarok, in Gotterdammerung, Rhine floods in, and the Rhine maidens are finally able to get the, the ring themselves. I feel that maybe, just maybe, the Rhine maidens had, should not have spoken, sung so loudly about how they really hoped that the Rhine gold wouldn't be stolen by someone who renounces love. In front of a dude, Bad you know, just I, I just feel like you know, long-term plans. If ever any of you are put in charge of a magical entity of some sort, please don't sing and or discuss the exact thing that would would have to happen to get that um, in front of someone who clearly really wants it. I'm just giving you a heads up. I think this is something that we that uh Rheingold cuts a little bit, the uh the animated version, again for time, is that each one of the Rhine maidens teases 
Albrecht in succession. It's like, oh, I'm interested in you. And then they get close, and it's like, oh, no, you're disgusting. And then the other one is like, oh, don't listen to my sister. I like, I think you're hot. And, and no, actually, you're disgusting. So he gets danced around by them. So basically, they like teasing people. They like teasing this guy. And he's so clearly horny. He's gone after all three of them. They're like, you are not going to want this thing because you'd have to give up love. And look at you. You love love. So they're really coming from a case of total hubris here. Oh, okay. All right. They, they, they do not see this coming. Okay. So addendum, don't flirt with somebody who wants to steal, who is going to definitely steal the thing you're protecting by saying, I hate you. You're the worst. And you're never going to get this, this thing of power that I'm protecting because, because you clearly want the thing that would then break the, you know, like then allow you to get the thing. <laughs> you know, so like, um, so yeah, don't, don't do that is. I think the ultimate lesson of the Ryan Gold saga. We all we all make mistakes. That's the moral <laughs> story. We all make mistakes. We all pay for the mistakes of our forefathers. You know, Siegfried is out there paying for mistakes of a grandfather he never knew he had. And implications he never understood. And even when he learns to understand things, he is then told to forget it. There's a whole thing where he forgets that he loved Brunhilde, and then he betrays Brunhilde because he no longer knows that he loved her. So that guy, he doesn't know a lot, and over the course of the opera, he knows less. That's our hero. Uh, just uh, something I just remembered. Uh, going back to the whole thing about the Odyssey, and the thing I was saying about the uh, combining uh, sorcery and spaceships, there is actually an even older anime, actually French-Japanese collaboration, about the Odyssey. Actually, it was called Ulysses 31, which I... Um, it, it was a series, um, it was a TV show, and um, I think it did the whole aliens and gods thing better than Harlock's saga and Hinakachi opening theme song. Throwing that out there for anyone interested. Ooh, like, uh... Right, right. The French and the English version, they're both catchy. And the Italian one too. I listened to that once. It's the exact same, but in Italian. When did this? When did this come out? Eighties or something. Ooh, it's got like that that cool eighties vibe to it. Then, oh man, I might have to look for it. It, it was so eighties. There was a. Uh, it was so eighties that there was a court case against it because it used some obscure Star Wars music. <laughs> like it was like a B track from like the disco Star Wars thing for one of the episodes, that kind of thing. Most 80s thing at all is to rip off Star Wars, really. If we want to really want to talk about excellent mashup of sci-fi and fantasy, uh, we should watch the incredible bootleg Gundam series I found. <laughs> what? It's, uh, it's, it's on a, uh, I can't remember. It's, it's a free website, but, uh, it's, it's a Korean, I think, a studio and it's, there's a recolored Char Osnable, but he has Amaro's head underneath. And he wields a sword and fights a evil space queen with an army of centaurs. It's incredible. What? Wait, are they space centaurs? <laughs> they are space. They're green space centaurs. Oh man! Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> uh, you can find a clip on it. A clip of it so, uh, on so our Twitter. Is that? Is this like um, C Lab twenty twenty one? Like, are they repurposing clips of Gundam? They uh, like, fashion in kind of ironic fashion or something? No, no, it's entirely sincere. It was made in the mid-80s. Wow. Yeah, there's like a whole series of 
I guess they just like, it was this one studio that just made bootleg, bootleg cartoons. And they just took, took character designs from, uh, famous shows and re- recolored them. Okay. Um, we're kind of traveling afar from the original thing that we were talking about. Are we like, uh, have we reached peak Rheingold here? We have probably reached. Oh, I, I do have like one final thing, which is about the music. Obviously, one of the issues of the Rheingold cartoon, because it's a half hour long, it has to cut all the music down very quickly. So a lot of stuff that gets developed at greater length in the opera is just kind of skipped over. All the really famous stuff, like the prelude or the entry of the gods into Valhalla, is very briefly done. But you do get, do get a lot of good elements from it. You do get one of my favorite parts, which is the theme of the giants, the reason motif, which really just sounds like them coming into the room. Bum, 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 bum. Whereas with Harlock Saga, while there is some use of Wagner music for the opening, which I quite liked, there's also a number of original pieces in the score, original songs, two original songs for the ending, and they can't resist using Ride of the Valkyrie, which is from the second opera. The Valkyries in the opera cycle are not born yet, so using Ride of the Valkyrie here is like using the Imperial March from Star Wars in A New Hope. It's, it's a little premature. But I'll forgive them because of how good it is, and also because, as we now know, they were never going to do Valkyrie. This is the only one they're going to make. Finally, you know, music, concert music. You know, there's a movie where there's a very famous sequence actually at a concert hall. Uh, it's called The Man Who Knew Too Much. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, so, that's uh, me. That, 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 that. Will wow. Be. <laughs> uh, will, I you mean. Just, you just reminded me, like uh, when Ride of the Valkyries came on. The only thing I could think of was Apocalypse Now. Like it's just so so associated with it. I I, I mean I obviously it's from Wagner, but uh, the uh, the first thought was like, oh yeah, Apocalypse Now. Oh, Captain God. Harlock opening the door. Get some. Get some. I gotta see um the final cut of that film like earlier this month, the month that we were recording this, which is August. And yeah, it was wonderful seeing that film again in the theater and. Really is the fantastic use of writing the Valkyries. So right. I just I I I mean like I I commend you for for do- making your connection, Will. But that that was <laughs> in in the scene. There was concert music. Hey, Chuck. <laughs> Got to take it where you can get it. No. <laughs> All right, folks. Would we recommend these two items? Uh, Amber, I believe, goes first. Right. Okay, so I think that just from the fact that it is so truncated and uh, and you don't even get, like, really good power pieces of the music from it, you could probably skip the Opera Vox animation. Frankly, the only thing that I could say a value of it is that it did make me more intrigued to catch, somehow try to find the full opera somewhere online. Because, you know, it's it's like your standard opera fare of, of storytelling through music and da 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 but like with clear through lines of probable tragedy in the future. But as its own piece, I didn't think it was really... You know, something that unless you just kind of want to have a Cliff Notes version of the opera on hand, you know, you could probably skip it. 
The Harlock saga, I'm kind of like, it's like, I thought that there, again, there were some elements of it that I really liked. Like, again, the way they controlled time, the opening sequence, the, you know, the, the way that the gods were pretty sinister, yada, yada. But there were parts that I thought kind of fell flat, like the, the creation of the ring, the means, the, the way that they ultimately used the, the two giant alien characters. So I don't know. Like, I think that it's more of a thing of maybe, his name's Makoto, correct? The creator. Leiji Matsumoto. Matsumoto, thank you. Sorry, Matsumoto. Matsumoto. It, unless, I mean, other than like, just kind of wanted to, ra- you know, do like a round, you know, rounding out your knowledge of things that he created. I, I don't know if it's necessarily something I would have sought out myself or would watch again. You know what I mean? So, eh. <laughs> so for me, um, uh, regarding the, um, the Opera Vox cartoon. So I actually have a kind of a nostalgic thing for Ralph Bakshi movies. So I don't mind the, uh, that style of animation. Uh, I mean, yes, uh, I agree with Amber. It can be pretty grotesque. The character, the character designs can be pretty grotesque, but I don't know. I guess I just have a soft spot for it, especially that Lord of the Rings musical cartoon. Watch it. That's uh, why not Lord of the Rings, sorry. The Hobbit musical cartoon. <laughs> just, uh, watch it sometime. It's like, uh, it was made long before the um, the Lord of the Rings were ever an idea. The trilogy, the trilogy, Lord of the Rings was ever an idea in the first place. And uh, it is at least short, so that's something. <laughs> it's uh, it's a half an hour, but uh, yeah, generally, uh, yeah, it's it's so short you get the Cliff's Notes version basically of the of the actual story as we learned today from Will, whose very extensive synopsis of the opera. So I'd say watch the Opera Vox cartoon if you at least want to get the gist of what's going on with the opera. But it's not 100% essential, but you can at least spare half an hour, watch it, and <laughs> so you can um, sound like you know what you're talking about when someone mentions uh, the ring cycle. Now for the Harlock saga, normally I don't, I'm not really that into like older anime. I find it kind of slow and I feel the same way for Harlock Saga. I mean, yeah, I agree with Amber. Like, in the beginning, it's actually kind of exciting, with, or not exciting per se, but interesting. Like, what's going on with this dead asteroid and um, these pirates and whatever. But you know what? I feel like maybe the adaptation should have gone even further from the source material because it did kind of feel straightjacketed. They had to make it like The Ring or the Rheingold Saga. They had to make it too much like it, and they couldn't really get into the whole space pirate stuff that I feel like was what they actually wanted to do, or Matsumoto wanted to do. And, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of it for me was just people standing around looking mopey, and sometimes they yell, and sometimes their ships blowing up. And I kind of, like, my mind kind of kept wandering with the final battle. I was like, oh, jeez. Like how how many um, ships are they um, gonna blow up at each other? Um, so uh, the takeaway from me is um, I'd say watch the Harlock Saga if if you're like a big completist or Meiji Matsumoto stuff. And yes, it can be entertaining if you're into anime of that era. But yeah, I wouldn't give it an unreserved recommendation. Yeah, I mean similar to. What others have said, I mean, I think with the 
box opera. It's half an hour, and so if you have, or even less than that. So if you have any interest in just like understanding what opera even is, like you may as well check it out. It's basically nothing of your day, and it is sort of fun to have this sort of like fire and ice version of opera. It's a little goofy and a little silly, and it made me laugh at the prestigious BBC version is infinitely more horny and fanservice-y than the uh, anime is. So you might as well check it out if you're just interested in, in knowing what opera is. Obviously, it's a type of art that many people are just have absolutely no familiarity with. I have very little familiarity with it. And so as a easily digestible intro where you can get a sense of the music and also see what's going on visually to guide you through how to listen and how to kind of, you know, get it, um, it might be useful as, as an introduction to people. And of course, that's really its intention as well as a primer more than anything. Uh, and as for the Matsumoto piece, I think I probably enjoyed it more than the uh, <laughs> more than the rest of y'all, but I agree with some of the criticisms. I think it, it really starts out strong and engaging. And, and I think the combination of the mythic and the sci-fi actually works rather nicely, but it does lose steam a little bit in its latter half as it becomes more action heavy. And if you're not sort of keyed into Matsumoto's style and his interests, you know, I think maybe some of it could, could fall flat for people. So I would recommend, as Jesse said, checking out earlier entries in the Harlock saga, which have that more traditional sort of uh, space opera vibe and might lean you into the series. And if you like that, then seek it out. Yeah, I guess my feeling is, as has already been said a couple of times, the Das Gold, it's a good cliff notes, and it's a good kind of basic sketch of what this is. But I would also say, if you are quite familiar with the opera, it is kind of fun to see the opera animated. I've long felt Durang would do really well as an animated cycle or a feature film in some ways. There's a lot of fantasy elements in it. It's nice to see these kind of fantasy elements depicted in a way you could never really do on stage. Like I mentioned, they have a whole transformation sequence with Albrecht turning into a dragon. And if you ever thought it would be nice just once to see Albrecht turn into a dragon, if you're coming from that angle, it is kind of interesting to look at. Of course, if you're not coming from that angle, it doesn't have a lot on the table. As for Harlock Saga, I do really like the kind of period production it's from and the kind of Leiji Matsumoto aesthetic that it combines with the operatic influences, I think. That kind of collision between Wagner and Matsumoto is more aesthetically interesting than it is narratively interesting. Like the, the plot mechanics and the things that happen are uh, where it sort of falls down and where it sort of just becomes a lot of things happening at once. But I think if someone is a fan of Matsumoto, obviously, or wants to see the very unusual case of uh, an anime trying to adapt this particular opera cycle, it's interesting in that way. Although I would say, again, as I already mentioned, Legend of the Galactic Heroes is a somewhat better anime in terms of just if you want the, the first Legend of the Galactic Heroes. If you just want a lot of classic music, heavy German cultural stuff and space opera, it delivers those in, in a more satisfying manner. As, however, to, uh, I just want to throw in vis-a-vis ring recordings and things you can find. My first one was Daniel Barenboim's in discography. I'm quite partial to that, although I know a lot of people prefer Salty, so I'm going to mention Salty's ring. But in particular, in terms of production that you can find online, and in particular, you can find online free on YouTube, I prepared for this particular podcast by also watching the Carrie-Ann Rheingold, which you can find on YouTube, which is interesting because he recorded it as a film. So it has some effects that they couldn't do on stage, although it's otherwise very stage bound. And it's only the Rheingold, which is why I picked it. The funding fell through. They didn't do any subsequent films like that. 
But also, again, I'm obliged to mention one of the most influential productions of The Ring, one of the most respected ones, what is known as the Boulez Chereau production of The Ring, is also on YouTube. Although it is quite old at this point, the recording is from 1980, and it's, you know, it's a TV recording. There are also some other productions, but I think I've mentioned enough for the purposes of a, an aside at the end of an anime podcast. Although, if people want to talk Wagner with me on Twitter, at VK underscore HM, I am always game for that. And if you know more about Wagner than I do, you can yell at me for everything I've got wrong. You know, I would also appreciate that. You know, you've actually kind of convinced me that an animated adaptation of the Rheingold, like, full length would be kind of cool. I'm I'm actually a little bit surprised that nobody has taken those particular operas and animated them just because of their cultural significance at this point, you know? As far as I know, these are like the only animated versions of operas in general. Operas as film is a very kind of small niche, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, so uh, just full disclosure, I... What I know of the um, Rheingold is actually from the later part about um, Siegfried. And the only reason I know that is because there was a, a this uh, European adventure game made <laughs> on it. Uh, I think it was called Ring. It was kind of weird, but like also really interesting. It was um, they also had this whole space opera thing going on. It was kind of very like Silver Surfer, the comic book with like people flying in space and like a. Valkyries with like um, laser rifles and so on, but yeah, it was a, it was it was a weird aesthetic, but uh, I think it worked. Um, oh, and uh, for our next episode, we are pivoting to something completely different once again. Next time, we are actually um, covering the first of the Berserk movies, the Golden Age arc, the Egg of the King, about this um, really super strong dude joining a mercenary company in pseudo-medieval Europe, and we are comparing it to the 1971 movie The Last Valley, directed by James Clavell, starring Michael Caine and Omar Sharif, about the Thirty Years' War in actually in Germany, which was essentially, to simplify it, a gigantic war between Protestants and Catholics, and the movie itself is about a mercenary company hiding out in a valley and staying out of the war for a brief period of time. I guess I should do this, the spiel real quick. You can find all of our podcasts and some additional content on our website, podcastleinthesky at wordpress.com. If you want to talk to us, you can reach us at Flying Podcastle on Twitter. That's actually our most active venue. If you like what you hear, please leave a review. We still cherish our review that from 2016 and hold it in a special place in our hearts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play Music. Good show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah.